Um, okay, good evening, everyone. So our topic for tonight, which will be the first of 10 or 11 topics um, going forward, where we will discuss a specific location in Jerusalem. So we've gone through the chronological history, and now we're going to do specific locations, tonight being the ultimate one, the Temple Mount. And we're going to put aside uh, the ancient period and focus on from the destruction to the present, but with a significant emphasis on the Ottoman period to the present. So Mount Moriah is the place where God's presence rests. Now, the Torah does not describe or does not identify that place, the selected place for God's presence, but rather it is Hamakom Asher Yivchar L'Shakein Shemo Sham, the place that God will choose to rest his presence. And yet, by the Jewish tradition, for at least 3,000 years now, that has been the location. It was commonly believed uh, by non-Jews, and even by some Jews in the last 100 years, that after the destruction of the year 70, the Temple Mount ceased to be relevant in Judaism. However, that's not true. And enough scholarship has been done over the last few decades to prove that the Temple Mount remained not just uh, a focus of Jewish aspirations uh, for some you know, cataclysmic end of time, Messianic period, but rather in the real world, people wanted to go there and tried to go there and were there. Okay, So after the rebellion was crushed by the, by the uh, Romans in the year 70, um, the policy about Jews in Jerusalem was strict, but there was wiggle room. There was the opportunity for Jews to go back into the Holy City and even to go back onto the Temple Mount. The Romans did not destroy the Temple because they wanted to eradicate all worship of the Jewish God, but rather because they believed, and correctly so, that the Temple building had served as a hub for political and military rebellion against the Empire. But once that rebellion had been snuffed out, there was no longer any serious reason to categorically forbid Jews from going there. Um, The only objection might be from Jews themselves. Why? Because of a ban on non-Kohanim Gedolim going in the Holy of Holies, and a ban on anyone who is Temei Meit, who has contracted corpse impurity and has not rectified that problem with the ashes of the red heifer from going on to the site of the Azara, the temple courtyard. Or for that matter, if you were just at all Tameh and had not gone to the mikveh, going on the Harabite more broadly. So the question is, did Jews still go on the Temple Mount in the post-Temple era? And the answer is absolutely yes. We find many examples throughout rabbinic literature of Jews and even rabbis being on the Temple Mount. So I'll give you... uh, My favorite story, which we've learned several times in the past, but I like to quote it because it's my favorite story, in Pesachim, Daf Gimel Bez, 3B in Pesachim, the famous story of the Aramean. What did the Aramean do? He pretended to be a Jew and went on to the Temple Mount on Erev Pesach and participated in the Paschal Lamb together with a group of Jews. And he was laughing about it to Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera, who lived out in Nisibius, and said, ha, 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 I'm a goy, and I went and had a portion of the Paschal Lamb. And there's nothing you can do about it. So what did he do? He told him, go ask for the tail. 
The next year he went back and asked for the tail, and the tail's not kosher. The tail gets burnt on the Mizbeach. So they investigated him a little further. They found out he was a goy. And what they do? They killed him. Okay, now this story probably never happened at all. But if it did happen, and even if it didn't happen, it's describing a scenario that could have happened. And that is a post-temple phenomenon of Jews offering the Paschal Lamb. So there seems to be a, the reason to believe that as long as the Flavian dynasty was in control of, of, of the empire, which means from Vespasian to Titus to the Domitian, Jews would not go on Harabais, that it was too dangerous. But after the year 96... No, physically, physically. The, 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 the Roman authorities would not have countenanced it. It was too dangerous to risk it. But after the year 96, up until the, the, the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, there might not have been any uh, danger, physical danger, in going up there. So we find other examples. We find that Ben Zoma. Now, Ben Zoma was a colleague of whose? Rabbi Akiva. Okay, Rabbi Akiva, who dies in the persecutions, the Hadrianic persecutions after the Bar Kokhba War, so he was active in the 100s, 110s, 120s. Ben Zoma goes on Harabais, and he finds Yoshu, Rabbi Yoshu on Harabais, and they cross paths, and Ben Zoma's head was in the clouds, which was, was often the case, and he didn't notice Rabbi Yoshua was there. So we also find Rabban Gamil II was up on Harabais, writing epistles to the Jewish communities around the world regarding Kiddush HaChodesh and, and intercalation of the year. So I'm not going to go into you know reading them inside, but there are many, many stories of Tanayim, who were on Harabais. The story of Rabbi Akiva and the jackal, was that on Harabais? So that story might not have happened on Harabais. It might have happened on Harazetim, looking down upon Harabais and seeing the jackal from a distance. Okay. So sacrifices may have been brought in the temple, uh, on the Temple Mount, in the absence of a temple building during the 65 years after the destruction. And likely the Paschal Lamb was brought annually. Only after the Bar Kokhba Rebellion did Hadrian plow over the temple complex completely and destroy the last altar. Despite the official ban on Jews living in Jerusalem named Elia Capitolina, there's evidence that some people continue to make the pilgrimage because the gates of weeping are never closed. And we've discussed in past lectures the Kalakadisha de Yerushalayim, the holy community of Jerusalem that was around in late Tanaitic, early Amoraic times. Okay, but it's pretty clear that the Temple Mount was off limits to Jews uh, in the third, fourth, fifth centuries. What about Fishabot? Okay, now the Mount of Olives became an alternative where Jews could pr- pl- could pray when the Temple Mount or even the inside of the city was totally off limits. Although, interestingly, there never was a synagogue built there, just a place to look from a distance. When the Roman Empire turned Christian in the fourth century, the Jews were allowed on Harabais once a year on Tisha B'Av, and the documentary evidence from the Pilgrim of Bordeaux in 333 and from Jerome in the 390s is that Jews did go on Harabais and they would pour oil, anointing oil, on the perforated stone, on the Evan Shtia, uh, annually on the 9th of Av. Hello, hello, Mr. Aronov. Who's with you? Mr. Haimov? Uh, no. no, just you. Okay, all right. So, um, now Julian the Apostate, tried to rebuild the temple in 362. We've discussed that in the past, but the project ended in failure and Julian died on the battlefield. But Jews did build a synagogue on the Temple Mount. And Rav Bibi gave guidance, not Rav Bibi Netanyahu, but Rav Bibi, about how to conduct oneself. So I'm going to read to you what the Gemara says in the name of Rav Bibi in Brachot 62b. I'm Rav Bibi, I'm Rav Shubin Levi. Kol harokek baharabait bizman azeh. 
Anyone who spits, expectorates on the on the harabayit in this in this day and age, it's like you spit in God's eye or like in your own eye. Shenamar and they quote a pasuk fine. So keep in mind, Rav Bibi and Amora citing Shuban Levi, who is a big Zionist, the biggest Zionist of all the rabbis. All right, we discussed that in class today. That uh, he says, if you go to Harabais nowadays, you can't spit there. Who's going? The answer is, yes, people were going. So you were not allowed to spit, and you were not allowed to go with your walking stick and your money belt. There were various uh, details of decorum, proper behavior, if you wanted to go up there, and people did. This was not guidance concerning centuries before, looking back in retrospect, it's speaking about in the here and now, for an Amora in the fourth century, how do I conduct myself if I go on Harabayas? Okay. Is there an issue of paying Kaobel? So yes, a person had to go to the mikvah, uh, and the ashes of the red heifer, uh, red heifer at that point were long gone. They survived the temple's destruction. If you, if you look at my book, and I wrote an essay in Parshas Lucas about how the ashes survived beyond the destruction of the temple for a good hundred years, but they were in limited supply and not everybody had access to it. But that is with regard to going in the Azara, the courtyard. But going on the broader Harabais just required a mikvah. You know, mikvah is a dime a dozen. Yes, it is Allah. Of course it's Allah. Okay, so uh, Solomon ben Yehoram, the 10th century uh, Karite. Well, actually, let's get, before we get to that, let's get to uh, what happened when the, when the Muslims took over. So after the Muslim conquest, Jews showed Omar where the temple once stood. And in return, he gave the Jews the right to live in Jerusalem, to clean the Temple Mount, and to pray on the Temple Mount without interference. So post-Islamic conquest, there is Jewish prayer in Harabais. The metamorphosis of Jerusalem into Islam's third holiest city did not have to mean the exclusion of Jews from holy places. Today, we think of it that way. It's an Islamic holy site, Jews can't go there. But back then, not so. There's no reason why you can't share a facility. I wouldn't call it sharing, just the, the, the religious minority has access to do their little thing quietly. Okay. Jews received permission to build a, a study prayer structure on the Temple Mount. And there are those who claim that the original wooden structure on top of the foundation stone, where the Dome of the Rock is today, was actually a synagogue, and that the Muslims quickly reversed course and said, ah, we don't want the Jews there, we want that for ourselves, and they expropriated it and made it into an Islamic shrine. Okay, so the 10th century Karite scholar explained that Jews prayed for many years on the Temple Mount under Islamic rule, but were banned eventually because of slanderers. Where else do we find slanderers and Jews losing access to holy places. This is an ongoing tradition we've mentioned in previous lectures. Can, who can give me an example of that? So we find that the, the Shomronim said that about the Jews in Second Temple times. They badmouthed the Jews to the Persian authorities who then suspended construction of the temple briefly. We also find that the that Samaritans or the Shomronim or the Kutim did the same thing vis-a-vis the Romans. In the second century, in the days of Hadrian, when there was some sort of promise to rebuild the temple, and then Hadrian withdrew that promise, which led to the Jews being outraged and wanting to rebel. And only Rabbi Yoshua's brilliant uh, diplomatic efforts prevented a rebellion. So slanderers are always a way of badmouthing the Jews, kicking them off of their rights in the holy places. Okay, 
Now, the Fatimids, who ruled between 969 and 1015, were more tolerant. However, crazy Hakim uh, kicked the Jews off the Temple Mount. Praying at the Temple Gates then became popular as an alternative. If I can't go on the mountain, what do I do? I go near the mountain, and I go to the gate. Because you can't go to the main attraction, you go near the main attraction. In 1057, Jews had to pay a special tax to pray at the gates and to pray on the Mount of Olives. So the preferred locations are, or the secondary preferred locations are available, but you got to pay the tax, you got to pay the toll. Okay. The synagogue that was on the Temple Mount, which was not in use at that point anymore, was destroyed by the Crusaders in 1099. Then uh, the Rambam showed up and personally davened on the Temple Mount in 1165. Although later the Rambam ruled that it's forbidden. If you look in the Mishnah Torah, the Mishnah Torah rules the Kedusha Rishona, the initial sanctification of the Temple Mount, remains in effect forever and did not lapse with the destruction of the first temple and have to be reinaugurated to the second temple and then lapse again with the second temple. It continued forever. So there's a stira, there's a contradiction between the Rambam's personal behavior and his codified rule. By contrast, the Ravid said that uh, the rules don't apply anymore and Jews can not only go on the Temple Mount, they can even go into the Holy of Holies. So if you're a Jew and you've gone to the inner room and you've seen the rock uh, and now you're feeling a little guilty about it 50 years later, you can rest assured the Ravid thinks you're going to heaven. All right? <laughs> All right. Well, it makes sense. That's the case in all, all of Germany where they destroyed shoes. Yeah. You can't walk on the ground. Why? Uh, I mean, you can't get back to the house. No, you the, the temple is in a category by itself. Okay, so Benjamin of Tudela, the traveler Benjamin of Tudela, in 1172, mentioned that the Jews prayed at the Western Wall, uh, but not the, re- the rest in Western Wall that we think of. We think of the Western Wall, Herod's retaining wall. He said Jews prayed at the Western Wall, the real Western Wall of the Beis HaMikdash itself. What's the problem with that? It probably didn't exist anymore. It was, it was torn down. So he's a little bit befuddled in what he's describing. Okay, I can't blame him. Now, after Saladin took over in 1187, he allowed Jews to pray openly on Harabais without having to sneak on as you had to in the Christian times. Then in the year 1211, the French and English rabbis, 300 French and English rabbis, the Tosafists, came and prayed on Mount of Olives and on the Temple Mount. However, during the Mamluk period, from 1247 to 1517, Jews had very limited access to Har Habayit. In the 14th century, uh, Ishtori Haparchi writes that the Jews prayed at the eastern wall of the Temple Mount because they weren't allowed to go inside. But he suggested that even in the absence of a Beis HaMikdash, the restoration of sacrifices is possible. So people don't think nobody, nobody was contemplating this. People were contemplating the restoration of the sacrificial cult. And he says, you know, we don't even need a temple. We can just do it. By 1481, by 1481, a visiting Italian rabbi noted that the Jews don't go on the Temple Mount anymore, even on Tisha B'Av. Where do they go? They go to Har Tzion, they go to Har Hazetim, but not Har Habayit. Then, in the 16th century, the Radvaz claimed that Jews regularly went on Harabais. However, after the Ottoman conquest, there was a rule enacted that you're not allowed to go. Non-Muslims can't go on the Temple Mount. 
And according to tradition, and we'll discuss this ne- uh, next week, when we discuss the Kotel, what is the origin of the Kotel as we know it? I don't mean the big plaza after the Six-Day War. I mean even the narrow alleyway of the of pre-1948. The beginnings of that were in the days of Suleiman, that he gave the Jews as compensation for giving up any, any access rights on the Mount proper, that you'd have a, a, a suitable prayer place down below in the alleyway against the retaining wall. They really had no choice. They didn't have much of a choice. Now, what also happens is around that time, the rabbis start making halachic pronouncements banning Jews from going to the Harabayas. Some say these were honest attempts at determining the halacha. Some say, what do others say? That this was a flagrantly dishonest uh, um, halachic statement, but was made because... Jews don't want to be seen as capitulating to the pummeling that the goyim are giving them. If the goyim say you can't go, it's a lot nicer to our psyche to say, well, we're not refraining from going because you say we can't. We're refraining from going because our religious scruples tell us that we can't. All right. So it's a little bit of a mind game, a psychological game here. Now, over time, plenty of the poskim and the chief rabbis accepted this as black letter law. You cannot go up there. Why? It's hard to explain. After all, for reasons of Tumah V'Tahara, there are only specific locations on Harabais that are really off limits. To say the totality of the 35-acre plaza is off limits is inconsistent with Talmudic law. And yet, that's what the rabbis started announcing. Okay. So, uh, then the question is, well, did Jews make use of the Kotel as an alternative? So we'll save that for next week. We'll discuss how popular was the Kotel as a, as a Temple Mount alternative in the first few centuries after Suleiman, but, but not for now. So the Ottomans did very little um, to maintain the Temple Mount. No Isla- uh, mass Islamic crowds came to uh, Har Habayit during the four centuries of Islamic rule. Today, you know, the Temple Mount is a big, attractive place. The Palestinians go, uh, Muslims from all around the Islamic world want to make a pilgrimage. None of that was true during the four centuries of of Ottoman rule. And in fact, early photographs from the 1870s show that the Temple Mount was basically desolate. Yes, there was the dome, and yes, there was Al-Aqsa, and a couple of other little shrines in between, but otherwise, it was kind of an empty space. Not much was going on there. And the buildings were not being maintained architecturally. So officially, uh, it was outlawed for Jews to visit the Temple Mount from 1517 to 1917. And the penalty for going on Harabait was death. Death. Death penalty. However, some Jews did visit. And they were prosecuted but they were not killed. Others got away with it altogether. Okay? In 1551, Jewish men and six women were caught on a rooftop overlooking the Temple Mount near Al-Aqsa. They went over an Islamic school on a a balcony overlooking the Temple Mount, maybe even protruding onto the Temple Mount, and they got caught. They were punished, not with death, but with Malchus, corporal punishment. They got smacked a little bit. Why was the Ottoman regime 
relaxed in their attitude towards punishment. If theoretically it was a capital offense against Islam for a a heathen, an infidel to go on the the holy place, why were they relaxed about it? Well, you know, they didn't want to have problems with the the minority population. They didn't want to have diplomatic problems. So... So that's true. If you kill the guy, he can't talk to others. If you, if you smack him, he goes home and says, hey, you shouldn't do that. I got smacked. Right. Okay, so the, the, the legal basis in the, um, in, the, in the decisions of these courts, of, these, of the Ottoman courts, was that the Jew was always either drunk, deranged, or insane. You know, it was a, it was a shote. And that's why we can't, we can't kill a deranged person you don't do that. You just give them a, a little slap on the wrist and say, don't, don't come back. Was there any blowback from outside of Israel? Let's say France uh-huh. or Germany saying what? Yes. The answer is yes. And that's why the policy changed in the 19th century. In the 16th century, the, the, the blowback was non-existent. But it will build over time as the Ottoman Empire becomes diplomatically enfeebled and militarily defeated. Okay, so the Maharit, who was an important rabbi, uh, one of the Mepharshim on the Shas, he went on the Temple Mount in the 1620s, and he wrote about it. How did he get away with it? Well, they just didn't catch him. Bear in mind, if you're not an Ashkenazic Jew with a big nose like me, okay, if you're a Sephardic-looking Jew, and Muslims are basically looking the same as you are, and everybody's got a bris, so could you really tell the difference between a Jew and a Muslim? All right, so there's bribery. There's definitely bribery. The guards were bribed, but also you could get away with it because you didn't look different. If you were a Polish Yid, yeah, you look different, but the Polish Yidden weren't coming. All right, so the Marit went on the Temple Mount, and this goes to show you that not all rabbis accepted the halachic ban on entry due to issues of Tumavatahara. Tahara. Yes, some did, but far from everyone. It was not a universal consensus. Okay, now, the complete ban on ending, uh, on, on uh, prohibiting non-Muslims from going on to the Temple Mount came to an end in 1855. Why? 1856, after the Crimean War, when the, the British side of the political alliances was successful in the Crimean War, and the Russians had a, had a bit of a defeat, and the Ottomans had a bit of a defeat. So, uh, the Western powers were able to enforce their will on the, you know, the weak man, the dying man of Europe, which was the Ottoman Empire. So the Treaty of Paris of 1856 required that the Temple Mount be open to non-Muslims Saturday through Thursday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. I made up the 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., but Saturday through Thursday, not Friday. Why not Friday? Muslim holiday. Muslim holy day. You give them full access without having to worry about the uh, infidels. But Saturday through Thursday, they cannot block non-Muslims, meaning Christians and Jews, from going on the Temple Mount. Uh, and this was in effect for the next 60 some odd years. From 1856 until 1910, the Ottomans were stupid. What happened? They forgot to charge admission. Then in 1910, they like bulb went off in their heads and they realized we could charge tickets, you know, $20 a pop if you want to go on the Temple Mount. Yeah. Yeah. It's about non-Muslims. 
but this applies equally to Christians and Jews. It's not about the Jews. It's about about Christians, especially uh, British Protestants, who um, who were millenarian types, and um, and and they really wanted to go up there. Okay, so this was there were other Jews who did it before 1856. So, for example, in 1833, a crazy Jew, literally a deranged Jew, went up on uh, um, on the Temple Mount and slept there overnight. And when they opened up the gates the next morning, he was seen vandalizing some of the, the, the holy Islamic holy places. And he was quickly arrested, thrown into an Ottoman dungeon, and beaten within an inch of his life. But then when it came to actually prosecuting him, the government said, let him go. It's not his fault. He's a crazy man. Instead, they punished the security guards. But you were lax in your responsibilities. You let this guy in. So it's your fault. Okay. But um, putting that aside, the, the first Jew to go with permission was Moses Montefiore, okay? The nurses are on strike, Montefiore is in the news tonight, all right? Uh, but Maishala, he went onto the Temple Mount with the British Consul General in Jerusalem, Joseph Finn, whose name, uh, James Finn, whose name we've mentioned before. He was a, a missionary and interested in develop, developing an Anglican presence in Jerusalem. So he takes the rich guy Moses Montefiore up onto the Temple Mount. Um, and by 1856, when the Ottoman policy was relaxed, the rabbinic ban on Jews going up there for so-called halachic reasons had been widely accepted. So Montefiore is now not breaking the law because Jews are legally allowed to go in the eyes of the Ottomans. But what is he doing? He's violating so-called Jewish law. So how does he get around it? What's the, who knows the halacha of Shida Teva Omigdal? What's the halacha of Shida Teva Omigdal? That if you go into the airspace of, um, of Eretz Amim, of the land of the heathens, it's, it's, it's tummy. You automatically become impure. But if you, if you encapsulate yourself in some kind of a box, a traveling box, then you don't touch the ground. You're not really in the land of the heathens, or for that matter, on Harabayas. If you're in this contraption, you're not on the soil of Harabais, then you're not guilty of violating the ban of going on Harabais. So it's like a too smart by half. It's one of these ingenious Talmudic workarounds. So he went on a sedan chair carried by, you know, four, four goons, and he's lifting up like a, like, like a chassan at a, at a wedding, you know, where they lift him in the chair so he can go on Harabais. But what happened? The Jewish community in Jerusalem did not take kindly to him violating the so-called ban. And therefore, when he went into the synagogue the next day, they pelted him with esrogim. Now, I say esrogim, but that's just a joke. That's based upon a Gemara with Alexander Yanai. They pelted him with rocks, little pebbles. This is a, a bizarre story, because bear in mind, what did he come to do there? Give them money. Give them money. He's the man with the tzedakah money. No schnur ever coming to my shul to ask me for money ever threw a rock at me. Uh, instead, they, they kiss my hand and say, Rabbi, give me $20. Throw rocks? No. So this was a really weird story. They excommunicated him, and and he the excommunication was lifted only when he promised to never do it again. So he would come back several more times there at Israel. Remember, he went nine times to Israel over the span of 101 years. He lived to be 101, and his last trip was at the age of 91 in the era before plane travel. So I, you know, call a kavot to him that he traveled on boat at the age of 91 to go to Israel. Um, but uh, he never went again in Harabais. Never, never did it again. 
Okay. Now, Jews wanted to get close to, to Temple Mount without violating the halacha. So one of the things that they did was to buy property very close to the Temple Mount, overlooking sometimes an elevated property on an upper floor, overlooking uh, the, the wall of the, the Harabai, so you could see onto the, the, the Esplanade. The other person who did go more than one time onto Harabait, rich guy, was Hanadiv Hayadua, the known patron, also known as Baron Edmund the Rothschild. Okay, so this, the Rothschild, the Paris Rothschild, who was the biggest of all the, of all the Zionists of the Rothschilds and gave a whole lot of money to build up the Yishuv. So he went onto the Temple Mount in 1887 and again in 1914, just before the war broke out. But, um, no, no, so, so what happened? The, the, the Yishuv is taking his money, so they got to be careful not to offend him. But Rav Cook, who at that time was the rab, rabbi of Jaffa, Rav of Yafo, so he chastised the, the Rothschild baron and saying, you should not do this. You know, this is against our rules. How, could, how dare you do this? Herzl, by contrast, although a secular Jew, adhered to the rabbinic ban. So when he went to Jerusalem in 1898 to meet the Kaiser, so what did he do? He did not ascend Harabite. Rather, he went up to the top of the Tiferes Yisrael Synagogue. You know where the Tiferes Yisrael Synagogue is? So it doesn't exist right now. It's under construction. The Tiferes Yisrael Synagogue, we'll talk about this uh, three, four months from now when we discuss synagogues in Jerusalem, was the original Hasidic synagogue in Jerusalem, built in the 1860s and destroyed in the War of Independence. Uh, uh, the, you know, the, basically a week before the old city fell, on May 21st, it was blown up by, uh, by Arab uh, uh, sappers. So it was the closest synagogue to the, the what was today the Kotel Plaza. So, for example, if you're walking from the Churva down the hill, going towards the Kotel to the staircase, you know, everybody kind of vision where you are. And, you know, there's, there's a pizza place on the left and the burger place on the right. You know, so the Tiferes Yisrael is on the right. The burnt house is on the left. The menorah, the, the billion dollar menorah is at the, towards the bottom of the hill. So that is basically at the southeastern edge of the Jewish quarter, you could see a perfect view of Harabais. So Herzl went there. He didn't go on the mountain itself. All right. Many secular Jews from the new Yishuv did go on Harabais um, during the 1890s, 1900s, up until 1914. Okay? It, it, was, it was legal. It may have been contrary to the rabbinic ban, but remember, these are secular Jews. So if they're secular, what's their interest in Harabais? Nationalistic, you know, Jewish pride. It's our holy place, and even if I'm not a believer, still, this is my, my national heritage. Check it off, I went, exactly. Um, and Rav Cook complained. Now, bear in mind, Rav Cook tried to have good relations with the secular community of the, uh, of the pre-World War I Yishuv, and he, you know, sincerely made efforts to have inroads among the secular Yishuvim. But, you know, they went to Harabais and they ignored the rules. Then, in 1917, when the Allenby took over, when the British arrived, the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa were in a state of utter disrepair, neglect, near collapse. Because, as I said, the Ottomans hardly did anything to keep up this place. It wasn't all that important to them. Keeping out uh, non-Muslims was important for 300 years, but actually preserving the integrity of the structures wasn't the top agenda. 
So Allenby came in. Hardly anybody. It wasn't really a popular place. It wasn't very popular. So, um, yeah. I don't think people pray at the Dome of the Rock. No, they just visited. It's a shrine. It's not a mosque. They right. go to Al-Aqsa to pray. So in 1917, when the British came, Allenby made a rule that the Temple Mount is for Muslims only. Muslims only. And to ensure, to enforce it, what did he do? He put a cordon around the Temple Mount, staffed by Indian Muslim British soldiers. Remember, India is under British control. They're, they are, have soldiers recruited for the military. Plenty of them are Hindu. Plenty of them are Muslim. You use Muslims from India to guard the Temple Mount on behalf of the British. This was the case from 1917 until 1923, which meant that the British, the British military, was reversing 60-some-odd years of fairly liberal policy that had existed under the Ottomans. The Ottomans, it's like like the British were more Catholic than the Pope or more Muslim than the Muslims because the Ottomans had allowed Jews to go up there, and now the British don't. Why not? Uh, Political considerations, they want to kowtow to the Mufti, whatever it might be. Then, in, uh, in 1920, Rav Kook, who at that point was becoming the chief rabbi of Israel, um, made a comment, sort of an offhanded comment, that although we don't have control of the Temple Mount now, we will at some point in the future. Now, what did he really mean? Mashiach. He meant Mashiach Zeit, Mashiach times. He didn't mean as like a political agenda in the here and now, we're trying to take over the Haram al-Sharif, you know, the, the, the noble sanctuary of Islam. But the Mufti, ever interested in causing trouble and rousing the, the passions of, of his brethren to, get, to kill the Jews, this was a pretext for the 1920 riots, right? And this agenda would continue going forward. Whenever the Jews make the slightest comment about usage or access to holy places in Jerusalem, ah, Al-Aqsa is in danger. They're about to take it over and build the third temple, or which they think is the first temple because they denied there was a first or a second. Okay, um, so this, this begins in 1920 with a straight comment from Rav Kook and continues Ad In 1920, 1923, the policy changed. The British military no longer was in control of Jerusalem. Now the civilian administration of the British mandate under the auspices of the San Remo Accords and the the League of Nations was in control. And they allowed Jews or non-Muslims back on the Temple Mount. So again, Jews might be reluctant to do so for so-called halakhic reasons, at least some Jews who listened to the ban, but others didn't think that was true, and the secularists couldn't care less. So in 1924, Breslov Hasidim went on the Harabais for Sukkot of 1924. They went for Simchas Beis HaShoeva 1924, and they wrote about it in one of the books, the Breslov books, that they were very careful to avoid those spots in the Temple Mount that are forbidden to the Tamei Mace. If you have corpse impurity, which we all do, they avoided those areas, namely the Azara and the Kodesh Kadash. How do they know what, what areas is what? You know, they, they make a rough estimate. So Hasidim were on Harabayas, 1924. And this continued up until 1929, at which point in time, the Mufti announced, we're closing the Temple Mount to all non-Muslims. The British didn't like that. Because after all, there were Christian missionaries and Christian religious workers and professor types, you know, archaeology types who wanted to go on the Temple Mount 
So what ended up happening was Jews can't go on the Temple Mount. Other non-Muslims can go with limited permission. So this means that Jews were not allowed in Harabayas at all from 1929 to 1967. 38, 38 years, no Jews on the Temple Mount. Okay, well, so were there some who got on without permission? The answer might be yes in the British era, 29 to 48. After 48, it's exceedingly unlikely that Jews, more than one, two, three, a handful, ever went on. Some Jews went to the Kotel uh, between 49 and 67 if they were not Israeli citizens and they went on, on, on American passports as tourists. I've discussed that in the past, but Temple Mount itself is extraordinarily unlikely. Okay, so uh, what happened next? The, um, in 1938, in 1938, Rav Herzog, who was Rav Cook's successor as the chief rabbi of Palestine, testified before the British uh, Commission that Jews are forbidden to go on Harabais. And this was important in bolstering the British decision to impose a ban on Jews. In other words, if the Jewish rabbis are saying that the Jews can't go, we don't need to be more Jewish than the rabbis. So if the Muslims don't want the Jews, and the Jews don't seem to say that they're also forbidden, fine, no Jews. No Jews on Temple Mount. Okay, but he was the chief rabbi. Rav Herzog had, had the respect of, of the, the vast bulk of the community, both of the old Yishuv, the new Yishuv. Everybody respected Rav Herzog, even the, the hardliners. Okay, now, um, the British themselves did not go on the Temple Mount after 1929. And they were careful not to interfere with the religious activities of the mosque and of the dome. So much so that even when the mosques became centers of the Arab revolt, with weaponry being hidden in the mosque, the British were loath to enter and to try to confiscate anything. Why? Afraid of an international incident. You know, so basically, this is like a sanctuary, literally the noble sanctuary, where you can get away with whatever you want. All sorts of shenanigans military and otherwise, could happen and the British are not going to intervene. Fine. Well, what about Jews having an aggressive posture towards Islamic holy sites? So I'm talking now not about I want to walk up there and walk around and bask in the the glory of Hashem. I mean, I want to blow something up. What's the history of that? So according to Chaim or Lasserov, and by the way, this is a really, like, a, like an irony of, of all ironies here. What happened to Chaim or Lasserov? Huh? He was assassinated in 1933, probably by a, by a fellow Jew, possibly by an Urgunist. That's what the, that's what the Mapai party claimed. The, 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 the revisionists, the Likudniks all say, no, he, he was killed by an Arab who was trying to rape his, his wife. But... Uh, Whatever it is, the Olaseroff assassination before the Rabin assassination was the classic example of Jew killing Jew, a politician getting bumped off by a fellow Jew. So Olaseroff in 1931, two years before he died, wrote that there was an extremist Jewish plot to blow up the Dome of the Rock and that the Haganah 
liquidated the would-be Jewish perpetrator. And that Yitzhak ben Svi and his wife Rachel, now who is Yitzhak ben Svi? The second president of the state of Israel later on, participated in the cover-up of the, of the killing of this would-be Jewish terrorist. We can't be certain whether this story ever happened or Olaserov made it up to, to, to sort of badmouth the revisionists. I mean, this was a common theme throughout the 20th century that the left wing of the aisle in Israel accuses the right wing of being a bunch of terrorists. So this story fits that pattern and of the Haganah sort of taking over and saying, you can't do that. We'll kill you if you even try. I don't know if this story happened, but Olaserov writes that it happened. Okay, then what about 1948? So in 1948, the War of Independence, uh, the Jews were desperate to save the Jewish quarter. And unfortunately, what happened, they lost. And the Jewish quarter was, was, uh, was eliminated, and the people had to leave uh, and go back down the slopes of Mount Zion to the new city. After May 28, 1948, no Jews in the old city. But there was one more attempt uh, in July to capture the old city. July 15th, 16th. If you recall, there was a 28-day ceasefire, a four-week ceasefire, in between June 11th and July 8th, 9th, no fighting. And then the question was, who would resume the war? The Arabs or the Jews, both or nobody? In the end, what happened? Both sides resumed the war, okay? And there was 10 days of fighting that lasted from about July 8th to July 18th. And then there was a second ceasefire that lasted until the, 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 the uh, October, and then, and then the Haganah, the IDF went on the offensive in the Negev. But in Jerusalem, there was one last push. And the, the head of the IDF Jerusalem corridor was David Shaltiel. He was thoroughly convinced that the Jews were going to take over the old city and the Temple Mount, that he had prepared special uh, badges like insignia for who was going to be like the, the honor guard of the Temple Mount and who was going to be the governor of the old city. Like He had all these plans in place because he was absolutely convinced the Jews are going to win. Why was he convinced the Jews are going to win? Because he had this like nuclear bomb, not a nuclear bomb, but it was like a huge bomb that was supposed to blow a massive hole in the side of the, uh, of the old city wall that was going to allow the IDF to rush on in and, and occupy the place. It fa- the bomb failed to explode or failed to make a dent in the wall. In the end, this was like a, a really big disaster. Israel lost about 50 soldiers in this battle. It was a, it was a, a, a failed effort. So why do I bring this up? Because before the battle, David Shaltiel went to Rav Herzog and asked him, what do we do halakhically if we actually win the, the old city and take the Temple Mount? What do we do then? Okay, so, so Rav Herzog's answer was, you have to clear out the enemy. So that means sending soldiers onto the Harabayas and even into the Kodesh Kadashim to, to eliminate opposition firepower. But once there's no longer any enemy on the premises, everybody has to evacuate as quickly as possible. That was Rav Herzog's position, that Jews should not remain on the Temple Mount once it has been rendered desolate, you know, uh, uh, effectively empty. Weren't they going to do a carbon also? Shaltiel, I think uh, that was in Old Jerusalem. I, I'm sure there was, I'm sure there was some who thought about it, but Rav Herzog uh, was not in favor of that. Okay, so Temple Mount is off, off the radar for 19 years. 1967, Motagur, Harabait, Biadenu, Moshe Dayan's decision 
to uh, remove the flag of the state of Israel from atop the Dome of the Rock. Rav Shlomo Gorin's efforts to have a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. So the soldiers Davin Mincha inside the Dome on the day of its capture, on 28th of Iyar, June 7th, 1967, there was a Mincha minion in the Kodesh Kadashim, in the Dome of the Rock. Little known fact. Um, and Rav Gorin established a shul and a study hall on the Harabais, just above the Kotel, but the government quickly shut him down. And Dayan's decision was to open the Temple Mount only to, visit, to visitors of all faiths, but only to allow pr- prayer for Muslims. The Knesset passed a law in 1967 uh, um, allowing prayer for all faiths everywhere, freedom of religion, but the government and the police don't follow the law due to security implications. And the Supreme Court, the High Court of Israel has been petitioned many, many times for this to be overturned over the last five and a half decades, and it doesn't get overturned. Wasn't the Waqf surprised when Dayan gave them the key? Yes, they were very surprised by that. They would figured they, would, they were the losers, and losers lose. Losers don't win. Why was, what was his motivation? His motivation, first of all, Dayan never liked the old city. He referred to it as a Vatican. Uh, as like a, you know, from the past. He, he, Dayan had a bizarre relationship with antiquities. On the one hand, he liked to steal them. Uh, he was a notorious thief of antiquities. But on the other hand, he was a modern modern man and did not like the archaic nature of, of, of the Irha Atika. He did not want Harabayit Biadenu. Um, and he felt, felt that it would cause World War III or some, you know, major uh, uproar with the Muslim world that Israel didn't need. Okay, so after 1967, um, Gershon Solomon, anybody heard that name, Gershon Solomon? He established the Temple Mount Faithful Group. And it, be- it began as a secular nationalistic movement, but morphed into something more religious over time. They would regularly petition for, uh, to conduct religious worship services on the Temple Mount, only to be rejected, to appeal to the high court, and again be rejected. They mainly operated within the letter of the law although there'd be an offshoot that would engage in terrorism. Their long-term objective is, quote, liberating the Temple Mount from Arab Islamic occupation. The Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa were placed on this Jewish biblical holy site as a specific sign of Islamic conquest and domination. The Temple Mount can never be consecrated to the name of God without removing these pagan shrines. It has been suggested they be removed and transferred and rebuilt in Mecca. So the Temple Mount faithful, they say... We can't have true liberation for Am Yisrael until we have Harabai Yadenu the real way. And as for the Islamic places, we can pick them up and move them to Saudi Arabia. And then Go to Kenya. the rebuilding of the third temple in accordance with the words of the prophets, that this temple will be a house of prayer for the people of Israel and all nations. Okay, so that's the Temple Mount faithful. They've been around since the late 60s. But then in 1984, things get a little dicey. What happened in 1984? The Jewish underground was caught. So wasn't some one of them from here, from Woodmere, or from Cedarhurst? What members of the Jewish underground? He lived here. Yeah, I think he escaped from Rappaport. 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 Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah Letters from Telmon Prison. Yeah. Yeah, he got in the next government. Yeah. Okay, over there. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so we have Jewish history in this room right now in the Sashtain base Medrash. Um, so, so. Uh, the Jewish underground was a plot to do a few things. One was to attack the Arab mayors in the West Bank, to uh, blow up uh, Islamic uh, colleges in the West Bank, and also to blow up the Dome of the Rock. 
and there was a plot hatched by Yehuda Exion, and there were two ideas. One, eerily similar to 9-11, was to fly a plane with explosives into the dome and have it, have it get crushed that way. The other was to plant explosives near the pillars and arches of the building to see it collapse on itself. The latter scheme was deep in the planning stages when the bom- and bombs had been procured. But the Shin Bet got wind of it. All 27 members of the underground were arrested. They were charged on terrorism charges and uh, served some time in prison. Some served a few months, some served a few years. The most anybody served was six years. And President Chaim Herzog, the father of our current president, Yitzhak Herzog, uh, announced an amnesty in 1990. And everybody was let out of jail. So attempt to blow up the mosque, 84, just like there had been one in 1931. Okay, now we get to the Temple Mount riots. Monday, October 8th, 1990, Cholamoid Sukkis, at 10.30 in the morning, Palestinian worshippers on the Temple Mount began throwing rocks at the Israeli police presence on the Mount and hurling them over the side onto the Kotel Plaza. There is, you can see, see a video on YouTube of people running away from the Kotel Plaza with the rocks coming from over the top. Um, this was the result of an effort by the Temple Mount faithful to plant the cornerstone of the third base Hamikdash, uh, Anchal Amoitzukas, Simchas Beis the real way. So they tried it in 1989, and the police stopped them. They tried it. They tried to do it in 1990, and they and again the police stopped them. But the Hamas and the local preachers riled up the crowd. They went down into Silwan, into the neighborhood in Silwan below the temple, uh, below the old city, and were banging on doors saying. The, the, Al-Aqsa is in danger, Al-Aqsa is in danger, come to the Temple Mount, we're going to cause some, 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 some trouble. So they threw rocks. Now, the fact that they threw rocks, does that, what does that show about it being premeditated? Can't have a lot of rocks there. Are there rocks in the Temple Mount? No. No, it's a paved surface. There, it's not like a, a, a side of a mountain where, where there are plenty of, of little stones. On the Temple Mount, there really aren't that many rocks to be had. There had been construction ongoing, which may have given them some debris that they could use to throw, but the evidence suggests that they planned this ahead of time, and they stashed a, a huge supply to, to throw as projectiles. Okay, so what happened? The police responded with automatic gunfire. 17 Palestinians died, 150 were injured, and the 20 Israelis were injured, both including police who were on the top and some worshippers at the Kotel below. The United Nations did what? Condemned, Condemned Israel. Okay. So the U.S. actually was the one to, in, to introduce this resolution. The most anti-Israel resolution ever introduced by the U.S. representation at the U.N. Now, this came at a time of unpleasant relationships between who? George Bush and Yitzhak Shamir. So the two didn't get along all that well, but they would cooperate in the months to follow when, during the Gulf War, Israel restrained itself and did not respond to Iraqi provocation with Scud missiles. So this happened just before relations improved between the the, the Shamir and Bush administrations. Okay, well, uh, Israel rejected the resolution and rebuffed an effort by UN Secretary General Javier Perez de Cuellar to send an investigatory committee. When the investigatory committee came to Ben-Gurion Airport, what happened? They were sent on a flight back out of the country. 
So Shamir was a, was a tough cookie. He, you couldn't play games with him. If he didn't like it, get out of here. Get out of my country. Okay. In 1994, the peace treaty with Jordan was signed. And in that treaty, the administration of the Temple Mount was given over to the hands of the Jordanian Hashemite Waqf. Okay. So Israel retained security control. And very importantly, it was the prerogative of Israel to decide on the admittance of non-Muslim visitors to the Temple Mount. The Waqf has control once you're there. And you can't interrupt their religious activities. But who gets to go up there? That's in the hands of Israel. It's in the hands of Israel. Who was mad about this arrangement? The PLO. Because the PLO, what do they want? They want a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital, with sovereignty over the Temple Mount, and that their religious folks and their politicians should get to say what happens on the Temple Mount. After all, it's Jerusalem. It's Palestine. It's not Jordan. So... Uh, you know, Rabin, who signed this deal with, with King Hussein, knew what he was doing. He was deliberately sidestepping Arafat. Okay, then Ariel Sharon's visit uh, on September 27, 2000, was the su- supposed proximate cause for the Second Intifada. Although the Second Intifada was pre-planned for months ahead of time, ever since the failure of the Camp David uh, in July. The Temple Mount was closed at that point to all non-Muslims from September 2000 to August 2003, and then reopened on a limited basis. So bear in mind that Barak closed it out of security considerations. Sharon, who was the guy who was the Temple who caused all this, he reopened it three years later. Okay, now the um, the rule was and I'm sure some of you have been up there, that Jews can pray with their hearts, but not with their lips, and not use religious articles. Can't bring religious articles onto the Temple Mount. Uh, And this is offensive to some visitors, not just Jews, but even Christians, who don't like it. And I can tell you with firsthand knowledge that uh, I went on a trip to Israel with a bunch of Christian clergy last May, and they were intrigued by the Temple Mount. I didn't go up. I stayed behind. But the other, the the Reformed conservative rabbis went up there with the Christian clergy, and they were told by the tour guide, be quiet, don't don't talk, don't whisper any prayers, no psalms, nothing, don't don't make any cross signs in yourself. And they came down, and they were complaining to me, it's not nice, you know, freedom of religion, uh, it's a free country, isn't it? How can we can't pray? So I said, listen, these are them the rules. But we make the rules because only one party to this is all a little too feisty and can't play well in the sandbox with others. And they understood. They understood. Now, the last point I want to make for, for the Temple Mount history is the Yehuda Glick assassination attempt. So Yehuda Glick was shot. Now, his gestalt is Beit Tefillah Yikarei Lechol Ha'amim. A house of prayer should be called for all nations. That he is not one of these extreme right-wing nationalist types who wants to blow up the mosques and build a third temple and have an exclusively Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. He sincerely, and I've met him a few times, nice guy. Uh, It's terrible that he got shot, but he recovered nicely. Um, His sincere belief is this is the, the, the location of God's presence on earth, and all human beings in a kumbaya fashion should be able to pray and hold hands uh, and worship uh, the Almighty. And, he, and he, that's really his approach. 
but people don't understand that. They think it's just, oh, just another right-wing Jew who, who wants to knock out the Muslims and take it over for the Jews. So uh, we leave it at that. I'll take any questions. Questions? No questions. All right. On that note, we'll conclude for the night. Next week, the Kotel. We're going to learn how it came to be that the Kotel Plaza exists. You've all been there a dozen times or more. How did it, no, next week, next week, we're going to be in business, the 17th, and then after that, the 31st, and then it's back to every other week, 17th and then the 31st. Stay tuned.